0: Welcome to the Stony Plain Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community that is about discovering fullness of life for everyone by practicing the way of Jesus together. Well, welcome everyone. Great to be with you this morning. For those joining us online, a special welcome to you from wherever you happen to be in the world today. Over the last number of weeks, we've been in a series out of the book of Proverbs, a book right kind of in the middle of the Bible. If you open it right to the middle, you usually hit Psalms. Just a little to the right, you hit the book of Proverbs. And we've been looking at this wisdom that God has given us through the writers of Proverbs in how to have our lives shaped more into the likeness of Jesus. And what we see in the Proverbs, although an Old Testament book with these little couplets of wisdom, every single weekend we're seeing how the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is being evidenced in the Proverbs. The the definition that we've been working with week after week about wisdom is this. That wisdom is the ever-growing relationship between a breadth of knowledge and a depth of heart. Wisdom is about way more than just knowing stuff. It's about expanding a knowledge on, on who God is, on who you are, who the world is, on what the world is like. And then a depth of heart, which is the courage to live responsively to the way of the spirit. And this weekend, we're looking at wisdom for doing good. And Proverbs sets two ways of life before us. It does this really throughout the book. There's the way of the wise, and there's the way of the foolish. And remember, foolishness is not just being silly. Foolishness is the things that are destructive. And so when we're faced with choices and decisions, there is God's way which leads to the way of wisdom. And there's the world's way which leads to the way of foolishness and destruction. And we're either living into kindness and into goodness, or we're living into cruelty and destructiveness. Our proverb for this morning is this. Proverbs 11:17 says, Your own soul is nourished when you are kind. It is destroyed when you are cruel. How many of us have felt what it's like to have a hungry and thirsty soul? Over the last number of weeks, have you even sensed at some moment that, man, I feel kind of spiritually dry? Or there's like a spiritual fatigue in me? Friends, good news today. We're going to learn how to have our souls nourished by goodness and kindness today. And my prayer this week for all of us is this was not just be a talk about the wisdom for doing good, that you would experience the goodness of God for yourselves here this morning. You know, according to the scriptures, there's a lot at stake with this. To think that when your own soul is nourished because of kindness, but cruelty leads to destruction. That's strong language, but I think it's true. You know, in this series, we've decided that we're going to be resigning from folly. That idea of foolishness, we're writing a resignation letter to foolishness and then examining how we respond when the light of God's truth comes on. And as I prayed about this for us this week, a story from scripture kept coming to mind. A story about goodness. It's a story about someone who was in a very unique and strange place when the light of God's truth in the person of Jesus shone into his life. And because of his response, a lot of good happens. It's a wisdom story from the New Testament, from the Gospel of Luke. It's about Jesus and his interaction with a little guy named Zacchaeus. Luke 19, to 10 I want you to feel and see and hear through this story what the wisdom of goodness actually looks like. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man, Zacchaeus, he too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So let me start with an occupational question here. We're going to get to know each other a little bit better at church today. And I want you to remember back to when you were growing up. I had a conversation with some of the staff this week about this very thing. Back when you would dream about what you were going to do vocationally when you grew up. Bring it to mind. Now, how many of you or someone you knew wanted to be in something like uniform, like firefighter, police officer, military? Any uniform dreams out there? Uh, Like three. Okay, I thought there'd be more. Okay, how many of you had dreams like this? You wanted to become an artist or an actor or a singer or a writer or something artistic where the spotlight is on you? Who wanted that? Yeah, just one. Kate? Good. <clears throat> what about the doctor, nurse, therapist, kind of in the helping professions? Anybody? Anybody? Okay, what did you guys want to do? Like nobody's putting their hand up for anything. This is incredible. So here's my story of my dream job when I was a kid. It was grade two, grade one or two, something like that. And the assignment in class is we had to lay down on this piece of brown paper and a friend would trace out our body and then we had to decorate ourselves in the vocation that we dreamed to be. And there was like astronaut and there was, yeah, police officer. My dream job? I wanted to be a garbage man. It's true. Because on my street in Regina, Saskatchewan, every Friday morning, garbage truck would come down the road and there was this guy hanging off the back of the truck Just killing it, like just bringing it, right? So here he is hanging off the back of the truck. While it's still moving, he would jump off and he would grab the bags and he got to throw garbage and get paid for it. And as a grade one kid, I'm like, that's the dream. There it is. What could be better than that? So yeah, I wanted to be a garbage man. So how many of you remember as children saying this? If your body was to be traced out and you had to decorate... I want to grow up and be in like taxes and tax collecting. Literally only one again. So as many artists as there are tax collectors, well, tax collectors really are never very popular kind of in any society. Tax collectors have never been popular really, but in Israel in the time of Jesus, tax collectors were deeply despised and not just kind of generally, ah, it's annoying, we have to pay tax. I mean, deeply hated. Why? Well, as many of you know, Israel at the time of Jesus was occupied by a foreign power. It was occupied by the greatest superpower in the world at the time, the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome, and the Jewish people in Israel were not free. Rome was really interested in how much money they could wring out of the countries that they ruled over, which was most of the known world at the time, because they had to support an army. They had roads to build. They had government infrastructure. And the Caesars wanted to accumulate their wealth They were interested in getting as much money out of the countries they'd conquered as possible. And what they found, the Roman strategy was really interesting. What they found was that instead of having Romans collect taxes in these foreign places, they could get it better if they had the locals do it for them. And so they would hire Israelites to collect taxes from their fellow Israelites. This is the way it worked. They would let people bid for the right to be a tax collector for a particular region and whoever had the highest bid got the job and he would collect as much in taxes as he could possibly get away with because he had to give to Rome what he had bid for the job and whatever is left over that was his to keep. The system was set up so that tax collectors were highly motivated to get every penny that they could and they'd already committed a certain amount. They were already out the cash. And if that's all they collected was Rome's portion, then they got absolutely zero. Everything over and above what they collected, what they owed back to Rome was profit. So these tax collectors were, I mean, they were despised as traitors who had sold out their brothers and sisters and families and people of God, sold out their nation of Israel to Rome for money. And they were seen as traitors that chose to profit personally from the misery of their own friends and family. Tax collectors were not only hated, they were deprived of being able to access any of the civil rights. They could not serve as a witness in court. They're not allowed to serve as judges or elders or leaders in the community. A devout Israelite would not even allow the hem of his robe to come near the robe of a tax collector, lest you become unclean. You may start to wonder at this point, so what in the world would make a guy like Zacchaeus willing to enter a profession that is going to create such hatred hostility and isolation for him. I have an idea about that. And this is just an idea. It may not be the actual thing. I can't look into Zacchaeus' heart, but this is a guess. Because when you read through the story that I just read, you know that Zacchaeus had one particular physical characteristic prominent enough for Luke to write about it. We're told that Zacchaeus was short. And we know, all of us know, how cruel people can be. And the way they treat someone who's different, especially who looks different. And maybe it was that Zacchaeus decided that he was going to show everybody who he really was and become big in the only way he knew how. Money became the guiding force and power of his life. In any event, he became a tax collector and not just any tax collector. He was actually really good at it. He was, Luke tells us, the chief tax collector. Like in the pyramid scheme of the tax, like he's getting guys giving him money from what they collect. He had other tax collectors working for him over this wide geographical area. He was incredibly wealthy. And it's fair to assume that he was thoroughly corrupt and totally dishonest in what was happening in his life. He had long ago given up on society and friendship or moral decency and integrity. He'd given up on all of that. He had placed his bets squarely on the square of, influ- of affluence, wealth, and possessions, that those are the things that were going to give meaning to his life. It was his way of not being looked down on anymore. Because when you have all the money, guess who's the boss? And he had bet everything on that. And then he hears that Jesus is coming his way. Jesus is coming to his town. He's going to pass through Jericho. And there is something about Jesus that intrigues this little Zacchaeus guy. He's not, it's, and it's not hard at all, absolutely not hard at all to figure out why that was. Because if you look back in Luke, just a little ways to Luke chapter 5, I think we get a clear reason why Zacchaeus may have been so intrigued by this character named Jesus. At this point in the gospel, in Luke 5, Jesus has just healed a paralyzed person. We pick it up in verse 27. It says, After this, after that healing, there's a number of healings there in Luke 5. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. Now very often tax collectors would sit at these booths along roadways or near bridges and they would collect tolls from people that were transporting merchandise. And Jesus comes to the tax booth and says to Levi, Hey, I know who you are and I want you to follow me. And Levi got up, left everything and followed him. It's this remarkable verse. It really is. Levi got up at Jesus' invitation and followed him. It's really two remarkable things. One is Jesus actually comes up to a tax collector, the kind of person we've just described, and says, I want you part of my group. Of all people, he asks him. And the other is the tax collector actually gets up leaves everything and follows him. Verse 29. Then Levi, so that day, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house. And who was there? A large crowd of tax collectors and others that were eating with them. Levi throws a party. Who do tax collectors hang out with? Other tax collectors. And who do they all report to? The chief tax collector. Who is whom? Zacchaeus. There's this meal that happens, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And by the way, he's actually speaking to the Pharisees at that point. You know, word about something like a meal like this gets around. This is not the kind of incident that gets hushed up. Zacchaeus is just lost. An employee named Levi. And not only that, they've held a banquet in honor of the person who got Levi out of the tax collecting trade. So Jesus keeps going to parties for tax collectors and calls them to be part of life with him. And Zacchaeus, I think, wants to see for himself, who is this rabbi going around hanging out with the likes of us? Who is it that's coming up to the booth on the side of the road to this my friend Levi, my fellow worker Levi, and invites him to be part of this group? That's about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus is now coming to Jericho. And I think Zacchaeus had already heard about Levi's supper. And he knows that Levi is no longer employed at that tax station. Jesus is coming to Zacchaeus' hometown and he wants to see Jesus for himself, but there's a crowd. There's a crowd around Jesus. Jesus' teaching and his miracles have created this frenzy. People can't get enough of the things that Jesus does and the things that he says. When you're a tax collector, you know the worst place to be is in a crowd. See, when you're a tax collector, you're really not the most popular guy, right? And people are not likely going to make a way for you, for you to see what's happening. There's liable to be a fair amount of shoving and pushing and cursing for any tax collector that would be foolish enough to show up the fellow Israelites in a crowd. Zacchaeus knows this. There's no way people are going to make space for him. But he really wants to see Jesus. Who in the world could convince Levi to leave his his job? So he climbs up into a tree. Zacchaeus, the man who has built his life of promise to elevate himself through wealth, has to climb a tree like a little kid to see over the crowd. Picture what's going on in verse 4. He ran ahead and climbed the sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. And Jesus then came to the place. Just imagine Zacchaeus for a moment with me. He climbs this tree. Zacchaeus is sitting there and Jesus is getting closer and closer. You can hear the frenzy of the crowd around Jesus. Zacchaeus is thinking, this is a good idea I had. I just want to get a look at him. I may be even able to hear a fair amount of what he says if he stops to talk under the shade of this tree. I'm so glad I'm hidden up here in this tree. And Jesus gets closer and closer. And all of a sudden, Jesus isn't only close. Jesus is standing right beside Zacchaeus' tree. Now he's not just standing beside the tree. Now Jesus is looking up in the tree. And there's a whole crowd with hundreds and hundreds of people who see Jesus and they start looking up in the tree. Because if you stand in a place and look up, everyone around you will also look up. Like, what's he looking at? Does he see a bird? And then Jesus says this, this, this one word, Zacchaeus. Do you know how many people in Jericho knew the name Zacchaeus and not for good reasons? And that one word sets off a ripple through the crowd. Imagine for a moment how Zacchaeus feels. He thinks he's going to get to be able to hide in a tree and watch from a safe distance. And all of a sudden, he's the center of attention. And Jesus and everybody else in the whole world that he knows is looking up at him, sitting in a tree, as he looks down at them. And I think Jesus, perhaps to maintain some dignity for him or to save some embarrassment, says, Zacchaeus, come down now. Like, just come down immediately. And then notice this. Jesus doesn't say, you know, I want to stay at your house or would it be okay if I come to your house? He says, I must come to your house today. I must stay with you. Why? Why the must? Like, I must stay with you. See, I think Luke wants us to understand by this that there is a necessity to what Jesus is doing and that God is at work. Jesus here is speaking a command. The same words that had calmed the wind and the waves. The same words that had given life back to people who had fallen ill. The same word that's given, the same kind of command that's given to paralyzed people when they walk. Jesus speaks a command to Zacchaeus and it's like, oh, I'm coming to your house. Like, I must be there. He speaks it as a command. And a command is always related in some way to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. When Jesus speaks a word about how it's going to be or how it must be, it means the whole universe has to sit up and pay attention because Christ has just given a command and the inbreaking of the kingdom is about to occur. I must do this, Jesus says. And Zacchaeus responds, happily, I think, comes down out of his tree and has to acknowledge the truth in front of Jesus that his whole life has been built on greed and dishonesty. But Zacchaeus responds to the command of Jesus. It's kind of like this. Your own soul is nourished. When you're kind, it's destroyed when you're cruel. What was the state of Zacchaeus' soul? Wisdom is calling and it means that Zacchaeus has to come down out of the tree to admit the truth about his life to Jesus, to himself and for Zacchaeus to a group of people that he had wronged and had hurt. So here's Zacchaeus coming out of the tree and he's carrying this enormous burden and he's hiding And notice Jesus' approach. If Jesus was just the ordinary, run-of-the-mill, good religious teacher, then you'd expect him to say something like, hey Zacchaeus, I hear you've got a nice house. How'd you pay for it? That's, yeah, really. How about this? If you clean up your life, I'd like you to change professions, pay back what you owe, straighten things around and once you've got your life in order, I'm going to come to your house but I can't come now. I won't come now. It would look like I'm condoning your life. Right? I can't afford the criticism would cause to my ministry if I come over to your house in the state that you're in. If you clean up your life, I will come into your life. But Jesus doesn't say that, does he? He says, Zacchaeus, hurry. Like, come on, dude, out of the tree. Come down. I must stay at your house. Here's Jesus leading with goodness. Let me be good to you. And Jesus even interestingly pays a considerable price for leading with goodness and grace. Verse seven says, all who saw it began to grumble. So they see Jesus say, Zacchaeus, I must come to your house. And the whole crowd that's been cheated and taxed by Zacchaeus is like, oh my goodness, this again, rah, 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 rah. You just hear the grumble through the crowd. Luke goes out of his way to tell us that this was widespread and not limited to one or two negative people. The whole crowd is not happy about what Jesus is doing. And all who saw it began to grumble and said, he's gone to be the guest of one who's a sinner. Like you can just hear the angst in the voice. And this remarkable thing happens. Zacchaeus at some point has experienced a change. I mean, he wants in on this kingdom that Jesus is embodying and he's not willing to tolerate anything remaining in his life that could keep him from living in the goodness of God. A few moments ago before Jesus came by, his whole life, his whole identity was built on all of the stuff that he had managed to collect from others. And he was willing to give up his reputation, his friendships, his decency being received in people's homes and all of it so that he could be wealthy, so that he could be powerful, so that he could be big. And all of a sudden in this encounter with Jesus, he's ready to give up his wealth, the stuff he had sacrificed his whole life for. In a second, in order to be with Jesus, being in an intimate relationship with Jesus, all of a sudden becomes the whole world to Zacchaeus. I mean, this is the power of an encounter with Jesus. Some of you know what this is like. I mean, like once you've heard his voice and you've sensed his goodness and you wake up one day to the the realization that Jesus himself has become the true satisfaction of your soul and now you don't want anything in your life. You can't tolerate anything that stands in the way of being close to Jesus. Has that ever happened to you? Have you really heard his voice and felt his love for you? And even in moments of deep darkness, you're like, I can't tolerate anything in my life that keeps me from Jesus because he's just that good. And Zacchaeus does this extraordinary thing. And friends, there's really great wisdom in terms of spiritual development here. Now, we have no idea if there was a conversation between Jesus and Zacchaeus, but it looks like In some ways, the very presence of Jesus and probably what Zacchaeus had heard was enough to bring Zacchaeus out of hiding and to set his life on a whole new path. Watch this. This is so important for us. Zacchaeus stood there and said to Jesus, look, he does two things. Let me do the second half first. He says, if I've defrauded anyone out of anything, then I'll pay them back four times as much. Four times. You know how wealthy this guy became? He's giving back four times the amount, but he didn't have to. By law, he was only required to pay back people what he'd taken from them with a 20% penalty. Old Testament law said that if you cheated somebody, you have to pay them back what you took from them with an additional 20%. Zacchaeus goes way beyond that. He says, I'll pay them back what I owe four times over. That's how committed he is to making things right all of a sudden. And he does this other extraordinary thing. He says, in addition to making things right with the people that I have wronged, I actually want to go beyond that. I want to pre- replace my old habit of greed with new behavior of extravagant generosity. In addition to what I'm going to give back to restore to people, half of what I have, I'm now giving to the poor. It's like this whole goodness extravaganza has been set off in Jericho. And this is what so often happens when we encounter Jesus. First, we're brought out of hiding and are captivated by God's goodness to us, that he stops on his way to find us and call us by name. And then secondly, in the presence of Christ, we feel motivated to turn from foolishness and vice and replace those things with the opposite virtues. Your own soul is nourished when you are kind. It's destroyed when you're cruel. And you see this all the time in the New Testament. For example, Paul, when he writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 4, He says, not just to remove falsehood. You have to remove falsehood by replacing it with truthfulness. He says, don't just remove bitterness. You have to replace it with a forgiving spirit. And this is basic wisdom for our growth in our spiritual life with Jesus. It's like this. If you know you have an issue with complaining, it's really difficult to say, okay, tomorrow morning, I'm going to really not complain. I'm just going to stop the complaining thing. That's really hard to do, isn't it? Instead, what we're encouraged to do through wisdom, through the scriptures, is begin to cultivate the practice of gratitude. If you have a problem with gossip, it's really hard to say, I'm just going to keep it zipped. I'm not going to talk. I'm going to stop gossiping. What we have to do, you have to begin to cultivate the practice of speaking encouragement. Zacchaeus could have said, hey, you know what? I'm still going to collect taxes, but I'll try really, really hard not to get greedy when I'm surrounded by all that money and power. And it probably wouldn't have worked out so well for Zacchaeus' life. No, instead he says, I am so motivated and so hungry to live into the kingdom of God and to live as this follower of Jesus that not only will I give up my greed, I will intentionally cultivate the opposite virtue. Instead of just trying not to be cruel, I will cultivate goodness and kindness. And I will become an extravagantly generous person. Half of everything I've got, I'm going to give away to the poor to the needy, to those who are suffering. And let's be clear, friends, this is not about a salvation by works message. It's not like Jesus is asking him to earn grace by doing these repentant things. You see, at the end of this section in verses 9 and 10, Jesus summarizes the whole deal. He looks at Zacchaeus and says to him, Today, notice Zacchaeus hadn't done any of the stuff yet. But Jesus knows his heart. And there's simply no delay. Salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus, he's family. He's a son of Abraham. Now Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. What does that mean? It means a true child of God. Not physically or genetically, but spiritually in his heart. Why? What does it mean to be a child of God? It means to live into the promise that God had given to Abraham. And what was the Abrahamic covenant? The promise to Abraham was this, that I'm going to bless you so that through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. And it's set up through Abraham this idea that when God's goodness is poured into your life, it is your privilege to extend that goodness as overflow to others. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, Zacchaeus, I have a new commissioning to your life. I want you to be like Abraham. You're part of the family. This is how it goes for us. And friends, we may be tempted to walk through the story of encounter and assume that it fits so nicely into a salvation story it's all about Zacchaeus being saved, accepting Jesus into his heart and going to heaven when he dies. And that that's the story. Well, friends, if we think salvation and the salvation that Jesus is talking about here is this one-time, one-time deal, a transaction with God, the ways that the Bible speak of salvation won't make very much sense if that's our only view of salvation. Like the story of Zacchaeus. See, Zacchaeus' salvation is evidenced and is committing to a change of life by the goodness that is being poured into him, being expressed to others, from greed and dishonesty to generosity and justice. He is repenting. This is what repenting is in the true biblical sense, a change of heart that is evidence in how one now lives. And to this change, to this evidence of a heart that has gone from being cold and hard and cruel to seeing a heart that is kind and open and good and generous, Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus needed salvation, no doubt. But not just for a future reality. Zacchaeus was needing saving from the cruelty of his own life. He needed to be saved now. He needed to be saved from himself and the destructiveness of his own choices. And if we push that aside, we miss the great possibility of this story for all of us here and now. That salvation, the goodness of God, is something that keeps happening in our lives. It needs to keep happening as we respond to the invitations of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that reflects the life of Jesus in us. So, what would it look like for salvation to come into your life today? Whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a minute or a hundred years or whatever else, we all need saving from something today. Because I don't just only need to be saved someday when I die. I actually need, Wade needs salvation right now, today. Every day I need to be saved from the destructiveness of my own sinful decisions and choices. We need Jesus to show, I need Jesus to show me what a repentant life looks like that's evidenced by how I treat people. How we work, how we use our money, how we worship, how we play how we use our time, that's the salvation we see in the life of Zacchaeus as he comes to Jesus. It's a picture of a life that has been transformed by goodness. Think about the goodness in this story. Jesus is so good to Zacchaeus, is he not? I think about that stop under the tree. He calls him down and says, I'm command, I must go to your house. I'm with you. Jesus is so good to Zacchaeus. And then Zacchaeus becomes so good to others. And I want to ask this question. Think about this with me. Is it possible that as Jesus came into Jericho, he saw a lot of suffering? And is it possible that Jesus really wanted to bless as many people as possible in that area of Jericho? And so the way he chose to do it was through getting Zach in on the goodness train. Like, let's free up the stuff that Zacchaeus has taken for himself, I need to set someone free so that the overflow of goodness and justice can come to the poor of Jericho. Is it possible in this whole inbreaking of the kingdom, this was way more than, I need to set Zacchaeus free. It was that. But in setting the one free, goodness starts to overflow to the whole region economically, spiritually. And friends, I think it's how the wisdom of goodness, goodness is experienced in the kingdom of God. We sung about it this morning. We talk about it a lot. The testimony is this. God is so good to us. And not just for some future reality. God is good right now. And out of the overflow of goodness and kindness to us, we can be good to those around us. So the question that sits with Zacchaeus, the question that sits with us, is what's been stopping goodness from flowing through our lives? If we want more goodness in the world, And I mean, look around. It needs some, right? Might it be that in the hearts of the followers of Jesus that are in this room right now, the question we have to ask is, in what ways have I been stopping, resisting the flow of goodness in my life because I'm actually needing saving from something that has dammed up the goodness flow in my life to those around me? What's been stopping goodness? The goodness of God that's being poured into you from flowing out to others. You see, friends, our own souls are nourished when we're kind. Do you want a spiritual revolution? (laughs) I don't know what it's like to live in the goodness of God and have that flow to others and the evidence and testimony of changed lives all around you. Our souls are nourished when we're kind. God is being kind and gracious to us today. What obstacles got to come out of the way so that that goodness can flow to others? It's what Jesus is doing. It's how he's calling us into his kingdom. Thank you for tuning into our podcast today. To discover more about Stony Plain Alliance Church and its ministries, visit our website at SPAConline.com. Grace and peace.